All right. So you know how stuff just sometimes just gets lost. <laughs> That's all there really is to it. And um, we found a lost file that we had never uploaded uh, to our preaching workshop audio archive. And this is a talk that Ralph Gilmore did on 1 Corinthians from 2020. And we're pretty sure the reason why it didn't get uploaded is because, well, I'm the one that uploads it. My name is Chad Lehman. I'm the education minister here at Graymere. And pretty sure the reason was is that 10 days later, the pandemic started. <laughs> so uh, we recorded this on February, uh, late, in, late February 2020. And then just a week or two later, we had the pandemic start, and so everything got kind of lost and tossed about. But we found this session from Ralph Gilmore. We hope that you enjoy it, and um, again, we thank you so much for attending our preaching workshop and supporting it as well. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hope nobody's pregnant in here because this ride is going to be swift. Right, I got I got nine chapters to cover in I don't know thirty five minutes or something whatever it is. I uh, love a lot of you people. I uh, know a lot of you people. How many of you people have I had in class? Hands up. Okay, so I've already ruined half of you. I'm going to work on the other half right now. Um, it's so good to see how uh, Brother England baptized me when I was nine years old. It's good to see him here and uh, a lot of other people. This is home base for me because I'm from Mount Pleasant about 12 miles away, but that's enough of that stuff. So here we go. All right, so here is the First Corinthians Master File, and I uh, have been there uh, maybe three times, and this is what you might get if you choose to tour the ancient city of Corinth. Now, that's what the Apostle Paul looked like. Why? Because that's what the Vatican said. Okay, so the Vatican, the Vatican archaeologists have uncovered what they think is the oldest known portrait of St. Paul, and according, according to 11 years ago, unless they found something more current, this is what he looked like, with a high dome forehead, deep-set eyes, and a long pointed beard, confirming the image familiar with uh, later depictions. So we know this is a bunch of garbage, but nonetheless, uh, that's what they, what they thought of his picture was. All right, now, I teach this as Chloe's laundry list, but because Chloe um, is the woman who has a house big enough for the church, uh, or at least for one of the house churches to meet, and so she's got this letter, and this uh, letter is to Paul about what are you going to do about this. So I call it Chloe's Laundry List. And, and Paul seems to be going down it. And whenever he uses the expression, now concerning the, now concerning the, now concerning the, he's probably either switching to a different question or a different set of questions that were given to him by Chloe's household. This is not the first letter. According to 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, there was another letter that was before this one. All right, and, and this one that we know as 1 Corinthians, therefore, would have been the second letter. Now, there was a third letter, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that was a painful letter for him to write, which apparently he, neither, he either didn't send it or they didn't receive it. Also, you can read about it in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. This was a painful letter that he wrote, and that is not at all the tenor of 2 Corinthians as we know it, because it's more touchy-feely. You know, 1 Corinthians is more head-oriented, I say, and 2 Corinthians is more heart-oriented as I, as I talk about it. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2nd, and 2 Corinthians is actually 4th. All right, so as we think then about these letters, then we look at uh, something you might think, well, we don't have to deal with this today, but we actually do. All right, here is a revised uh, Leon Morris outline from the Tyndall series. Uh, knowledge about idols, chapter 8, the, the weak brother, beginning in verse 7. The examples of Paul, Paul had a set of rights, but he refused to use those rights, and his job is to want to serve all people, and he wants to be self-controlled, and of course he has to practice self-control every day because there was a large buffet in Corinth. Okay, uh, and then the, the example of the Israelites and the idols, chapter 10. All right, Christians and idols are incompatible, chapter 10, the latter part. And then the practical outcome of it is, um, you know, you got to learn to stay away from idols, and you got to learn to walk as I walk, Paul would say. So I think that the section should end in chapter 11, verse 1, and then another section is going to begin. Okay, knowledge about idols, chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. All right, so what we see then about this, now concerning. There it is, now concerning, things sacrificed to idols. You might think that we don't have anything to do with that because we don't sacrifice things to idols, but we do. An idol is anything that can take the place of God. Um, doesn't have to be um, Aphrodite. Doesn't have to be Apollos. Doesn't have to be Zeus. Doesn't have to be Ares. You know, doesn't have to be any of those. But anything that can take the place of God is an idol. And even though we might not have meat that has been sacrificed to an idol, I do know a guy. 
who used to be from Nashville, Arkansas, who one morning found out on his farm that some of his uh, young juvenile calves, the, 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 we would call veal, <laughs> okay? The young juvenile calves, they, their necks had been split and they had been bled and therefore probably gonna be used in devil worship, right? And so he said, meat is meat, who cares? And his wife said, I'm not eating that stuff. Okay, now why is that? Well, because she couldn't conscientiously eat something that she thought was going to be used in the devil's service. And so that does have some application to us today. Why? Because as preachers, here is a major problem for you. The difference between values and ethics, so the difference between values and doctrine. You know, value would be something that you find to be important. Um, uh, I had told with uh, Dale today and his brother Jeff Jenkins, Dear friend, I gave him an Alabama shirt. I nearly threw up all the way that I gave it to him. You know why? Because I'm not an Alabama fan. All right, but nonetheless, I gave it to him because it had to be his values. And, you know, and so he can wear the shirt as long as I don't have to wear it. So here's, is it a value? Yeah. I have Jace Pruitt in class. Jace is the son of the Tennessee coach. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, that someday that might be a tour of the locker room. I mean, anyway, so we're talking about values, right? Values don't have anything to do with right and wrong. And we recognize, okay, you can root for Auburn or Alabama or Tennessee, whatever else, as long as you understand that this is not a matter that should divide brothers and sisters. All right, so that would be value. So value is anything to which you attach worth, significance, or importance. Therefore, if it's something that you find worthwhile, significant, or important, it is of value to you. But you're going to find out that people in the church often do not have the same values. And when they don't have the same values, what do you do when values conflict? Now, when values conflict, it's not as bad as whenever somebody thinks that something is okay to do and somebody else thinks, ah, oh, that's not okay to do. Then all of a sudden you find yourself in this deal here. Can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol or not? Lay it out on the line, preacher, black and white. What is the deal? Can you eat meat sacrificed to an idol or what? Draw the line. We want you to draw the line. And Paul's not going to draw that line. Huh? Because he says it's not a matter of intrinsic value. It has no intrinsic worth. In the eyes of God, God does not really care whether you eat meat sacrificed to an idol. So there are going to be two other considerations. And the other consideration is going to be, number one, what does it do to the health of your, the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters? And number two, what does it do to your own conscience? So when we think about the, the values of camels, we rarely use them here in Middle Tennessee. All right, but nonetheless, this guy's wearing white, and we think when it gets hot around here, you're supposed to take off clothes. And this guy's putting on clothes when it's hot. Uh, and he might know something that we don't know. But anyway, a value would be, well, what's it like to ride a camel? What's it like to build a pyramid? But an ethic is going to be a prescribed value, meaning, aha, this is now a matter of right and wrong. So there's the weak brother. What about him? Any meat sacrificed to idols, according to Paul, is not intrinsically wrong. However, it could be instrumentally wrong. Now, if something is intrinsically wrong, it's wrong 24-7, 365, period. It's just wrong. On the other hand, could it be instrumentally wrong? And the answer is yes. If it violates the conscience of a weak brother, 8.13, or if it violates your own conscience, Romans 14.23. Well, then some of you say, but I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings whenever I preach. Matter of fact, before I preach, I've already hurt some people's feelings. You know, they just upset by the way that I look. And so then how do I handle that? Well, there's the Temple of Aphrodite. The one in the, the Hellenistic age would have been on top of that mountain. There's also another one in the Roman age. But that mountain, I just looked it up, is 1,886 feet high. And I just preached in Woodbury, Tennessee yesterday. Short Mountain is the highest point in, in Middle Tennessee, and it's 2,000 feet. So it's roughly the size of the height of Short Mountain. Now, the synagogue inscription that you read in Romans 16, uh, 23, that inscription of Erasmus is going to be there. And the amphitheater where Paul, uh, where, uh, where, well, a lot of things are going to go on in Corinth is going to be there. And the place where he's going to be judged by Gallio is going to be there. And so the Asclepion, look at the top up there. The Asclepion is going to be a place kind of similar to places that we have here in Columbia. That is, they're going to take meat from the temples and they're going to, it's going to be presented before some pagan altar to some god. And then the meat is going to be brought to the courtyard here. And then the courtyard has various uh, dining rooms that will hold up to 11 people each. So what you do then is like the best buffet in town. 
because you go to the place where the meat is really fresh. And then you go to where it is prepared, maybe in the courtyard area there, and then you can eat there. So if you're going to say to the early Christians, you cannot eat here, you're cutting out like Western Sizzling. I mean, you're like cutting out like a major place for them to eat because this is going to be one of the places where they would ordinarily have gone. So can I eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? A zoom in on that would be the courtyard area here, the dining rooms on the left-hand side, etc. So um, how do I, as preachers, how do you apply the principles of 1 Corinthians 8 when the issue is not the same? All right, here's some ideas. Number one, the offense, scandalon in Greek, uh, scandal, scandalon in Greek, all right, the offense has to be in and of itself serious. In other words, it's not somebody that doesn't like the fact that you're not wearing a tie or that you're wearing a tie and you got it covered up in my case. Okay, and say, or it's not just that somebody doesn't like the fact that you are or are not wearing blue jeans when you preach. This is not that. This is serious. Around here, a person could get offended you know, quote, unquote, and they can go within spitting distance and go to another church of Christ. They can't do that at Corinth. Remember what Jeremy said about having to travel various distances, etc. So that means then, first of all, it's a serious thing and not just out of your comfort zone. Number two, the offended one must be a weak brother and not an obstinate one. Here he's talking about the fact that you're weak. You're young in the faith. You hadn't been in the church 30 years. The church hadn't existed for 30 years. At least not at Corinth. So these are not people who, as my father-in-law would say, were weaned on a persimmon and born in the kickety boot. I mean, there are just some people that you cannot please. These are weak people, not the people with whom you have to talk every Monday morning as they straighten you out about your sermon. That would be those guys who it seems as though there has to be at least one in every congregation, and we're going to call them high-maintenance individuals. Why? Because they've been in the church a long time, but they can't even seem to get the most basic stuff right. Number three, the abuse of one's Christian liberty shows a lack of maturity. So what you need to work on here is the level of maturity of this person. But, Bill, that's one of the problems. The people who don't think that they are mature, I mean, they think that they are mature, and you see the immaturity in them, they don't like when you point this out. And so then you have to try to work to get them up to the point to where... If indeed it is not a matter of fellowship, then why make it one? And the offended ones are not to rule the church. And if you let them rule the church, one of the worst things you can do is have two elders. Why? Because every decision has to be unanimous. If you can have three elders or more, every decision does not have to be unanimous. One of the problems then with being this, if there is this policy at your church, if we do something that some member... Um, let's say, is offended by, then we will cease it immediately. Then you give this person carte blanche authority as the head elder. They become the head elder because they can stop any program regardless of whether or not God uh, wants it done or not. So here are four principles from 1 Corinthians 8. And I think it's about the little wabbit. Okay, the little wabbit here is this. It's, it, you know, there's going to be a... a, a you know, a string on the end of that trap there. And then when the little rabbit goes in there, he puts some food under there. And then you go, Phew. okay, now that's the scandalon. It's the trigger to the trap. Aha, I gotcha. That indicates a poor quality of heart. Also indicates a person who should not be ruling the church. All right, so Paul's rights, what are they? Well, he said he had the right to eat and drink. And he said he had the right to bring along a believing wife, by the way. Uh, that not him, but uh, Peter. And he argues that Peter had a right to do that. Now that I'm uh, retiring on May the 31st, that's going to be one issue. As to when my wife can go with me and, you know, when she can't go with me. Uh, so uh, I want you elders to remember the fact that this is in the Bible. Okay, and that is, you know, you can't believe it wrong. You can bring along a believing wife. I mean, it's your right to do so. But elders, it's also your right to say, no, we're not going to pay for her away. Or you have the right to say, yep, we want you, and we'll also pay for our plane ticket as well. So you have the right to do that. Now, notice the number of analogies that are used here. A soldier has the right, of course, to, him, to eat the MRI, MRI, ready to eat meals. Okay, he has the right to eat those. A vineyard keeper has the right to enjoy the fruit of his labor. The shepherd has the right to 
eat lamb if he wants to. The farmer can eat of his crops. The sower can obviously eat of the wheat. And the priest in the temple had special hooks that they would drop down uh, into the, in the pot of boiling meat. And they could bring them up and they could eat whatever was on the three-pronged fork. Now, Paul is using all of this as an analogy to say this. Nothing wrong with having a full-time preacher. Nothing wrong with having a full-time elder. Nothing wrong with having a lot of other full-time workers. But you need to, of course, be use good sense about this. Is the church the size that you that can accommodate that number of full-time people or part-time people? And exactly how is all this going to work? Well, that is, that is indeed a right. So Paul refuses to exercise his rights. And when he does this, he's damned if he did, damned if he didn't. I mean, if he did to some people, if he did to some people take money from them, then they would say, why don't you come for free? And then on the other hand, if he said, I'm just going to raise my own support, they're going to say, you must not be very good because we're not having to pay for you. So whether or not he did or he did not, notice the problems here. Now, this would be, of course, the classical passage, I think, for preachers. And that would be 1 Corinthians 9, and that would be becoming all things to all men that you might, and these might uh, save some. So notice what he says. He said he was compelled to preach. Just talking at lunch today, somebody keeps asking, what are you going to do when you retire? And I'm thinking, what word do you not understand? Is it retire or quit? Okay, so I'm kind of thinking, all right, I'm not going to drive to Freed Hardeman anymore, uh, at least every day, because I've driven 400,000 miles there over 40 years. Okay, on that one road alone. And so what I'm thinking is, I don't want to do that. Well, am I going to retire from everything? No. But I'm not going to be a full-time teacher anymore. So why, I mean, are you, do you plan to retire from preaching? Well, a lot of preachers don't intend to do that. They intend to keep on preaching somewhere, even if they don't have to get paid the amount that they were paid before or not paid at all. So he says the right motivation is, he said, look, I cannot not do this. Tom Holland used to say this uh, when I was a student, and I didn't really fully understand it. You know, I can, you know, don't preach, you know, unless you feel like you have to. And I'm thinking, there's a lot of things I can do besides preaching. You know, because I was a math major first. I didn't understand that. I understand it more now. And that is, do you feel compelled to do it? So if you preach voluntarily, you have your reward. If you preach involuntarily, then you have a stewardship. And then, therefore, he offered the gospel without charge so as not to use all of his rights. And point number three, Paul did this to serve all the people. Though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave to all. You know this passage very well. So what I see here, then, is that should I decide that I want to do this, why do you want to preach? Well, it's not for the wrong reasons. I want to do it for the sake of evangelism. I want to do it for the sake of service. <laughs> To the Jews, I want to know how to contextualize, to think as a Jew. And to the Gentiles, I want to learn to contextualize, to think like a Gentile. To the weak, I don't have to contextualize here in Middle Tennessee because I naturally think like you guys, at least many of you. But if I'm out of my culture, then I have to think differently, especially if it involves Panera Bread. Okay, I, I, I'm not able to contextualize some of the things that Generation Z happens to like. And to the weak become weak. And in this way, Paul became a partaker, i.e., the contextualization method. So, Paul has to exercise self-control. It'd be terrible for a preacher to do everything and not have enough time with his own family. I'm old enough that I've heard enough preachers talk about regrets. One of the regrets that I hear is that there are preachers that spend so much time with the congregation that they didn't spend the same quality of time with their own family and they have lived to come to regret that. So what do you do about that? Well, don't do it. You know, it's fair to say to somebody, I'm sorry, I'm not going to this gospel meeting. Let me use an illustration. I know of a case where a guy's daughter uh, attempted suicide and rather than going home, which he should have done, he finished the gospel meeting. Uh, at that point then, I'm thinking, you've sinned. Because there are other people to finish your gospel meeting. You're not the only one who can preach. You get in your car and you go home. That's what you do. Because your family is that important. 
So, um, let's look at chapter 10. There's a brief reference to history here. And in the reference to history, he's talking about a brief reference of the Israelite history. And they were baptized in the cloud. That's an issue to some, but not if you know what the word baptized means. There's not an issue if you know what baptizo means of Moses being baptized in the cloud in the sea. He was overwhelmed. He was circled. He was immersed, you know, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. And uh, I am very much a dispensationalist in this respect. I do believe that the patriarchal age, the mosaic age, and the Christian age. Now, the question then is, under the Christian age, this time has not come to completion because the Lord has not returned. So that means then that we don't have to deal with idolatry, right? No, still do. Why? Because the people still get attracted to idolatry. And they get attracted in similar ways to the analogies that Paul uses here. For instance, you begin to appreciate what other people have when they drink, whenever they gamble, whenever they uh, sleep with spouses, not their wives. And you begin to appreciate that and, and you start thinking, you know, I wish I could live that way. And then you think, all right, then before you know it, you associate yourself with people who think that way. And then before you know it, they get you involved with people who think that way. And then you have then lost your way from the Lord. So as he talks about that, that's very important. First Corinthians chapter 10. I still believe in this, uh, that the basic principles of temptation are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Is there a limit to our temptation? I think that God would not intentionally entrap you so as to have to sin. Why would he do that to you if you are his son or daughter, according to Matthew chapter 5? If a son asks for a fish, would you say, chew on the scorpion? I'm thinking that God gives ways. It sometimes may not be what you're looking for may not be the answer that you want but nonetheless he gives ways for you to make it through without being condemned in sin and if you think that it's so smart that we are so smart because we're preachers that we're not exempt think of preachers that you now know who lost their jobs because of internet pornography almost all of you know at least one and in some cases several and we say well that's not going to happen to me you say that and that's exactly the words that satan relishes when you say that's not going to happen to me and then you find yourself in a circumstance to where it's long it takes a long time for you to recover takes a long time for the church to recover takes a long time for the town to recover because there has been some there has been some indelicacies at the local church. So what I'm saying then is, it's very important, guys, for us to remember to plow in our own field. Okay, and so if there is incompatibility of Christian and, I, and idol worship, uh, for, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, 14 through 22, uh, I have seen in the Amish village in western Pennsylvania, I have seen them with uh, AT&T um, advertisements on the side of their black buggies. I have seen the state of Pennsylvania will put uh, pay booths out by the road because you can use a cell phone as long as you're not on your own property. So if you want to be come out from among them and be separate, just walk off your property and go to the state road, and there you can use your cell phone. I'm kind of thinking, I'm not thinking that's what Paul had in mind here. All right, coming out from among them and being separate might not mean necessarily using your cell phone might mean a, a broader point here, and that is surround yourself by, with people that you want to be spiritually alike. If you admire somebody's spirituality, find opportunities to be around them. And if you don't, you will probably become like those people with whom you have close associations. Now, because of time, we've got to go further. Well, therefore, whatever you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God, verse 31. And so now we go to disorders related to worship. Uh, another big section. Notice that I have edited Leon Morris's uh, outline somewhat, um, and I'm going to indicate to you something that I cannot prove. It's just absent. All right, now let me say to this uh, I cannot necessarily prove that the Baal stuff was not women praying and prophesying in worship, but I'm going to point out an oddity to you in the text. Are you ready for it? 
All right, here's the oddity of the text. The, the veiling of women, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, the variety of them in chapter 12, and love is the permanent gift in chapter 13, and the regulation of them in chapter 14. Okay, so with regard to the veiling of the women, here is the oddity. The whole church itself is not mentioned in verses 1 through 16, but it is mentioned five times in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Now, if we look then and we say, when you come together as the church, that's verse 17. Come together as the church, verse 18. Come together, verse 20. Uh, let's see, there's two more. Yeah, verse 33 and 34. Brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be of judgment. I think if Paul, this is my opinion, I think if Paul wanted to make it, make it ever more clear that these women were praying and prophesying to the whole congregation, uh, it could have been easily settled with the same expression that he uses five times after verse 16. But he did not. Now, I know that's an argument from silence. And I know that sometimes we cannot anticipate what an inspired writer could have said to have cleared it up because he's writing in the first century context and we're thinking about it in 21st century contexts. I'm just saying that the oddity is there. Now, the question then is, what about the wearing of veils? Well, here's uh, what I think. Why were women to wear veils in 1 Corinthians 11? So as not to dishonor her head, verse 5. To be modest, verse 6. To show respect for creation, verses 7 through 9. Although, note, Eve was not created with a veil. Verse 10, to show respect for the angels, whatever that means. I don't know anybody who actually fully knows what that means. It might mean that the angels, um, whenever they rebelled against God's place for them in, in, in God's creation, then they suffered. And we should learn from that very point. Maybe that's as good as what I have heard. And then finally, to show respect for other churches as Paul did. And by the way, the custom that's being referred to in verse 16 also could have multiple um, applications. For instance, is it the custom of being contentious that he's talking about? Or is he talking about the custom of the veil? Well, I don't know that you can settle this with Greek. At least I've not been able to do it, although I'm not as advanced as some, I'll tell you. But I'm just saying to you that I don't know exactly which one he's talking about. But when he says, now, if you want to be contentious about this, we don't have any custom like that in the churches of Christ. I tend toward the interpretation that he's talking about, listen to what I'm saying. And don't be contentious about it. Because that's not the way that we want to live if we want to live together in unity. All right, so um, here's why I think the prince the veil is not binding. If a command from an inspired person is given in a cultural situation that ceases to exist, so does the command. Uh, in teaching classes, I'll ask the girls uh, that I know are about to get married, which is Fried Hartman, it's about every other girl. Okay, so then I'll ask, ask the girls, do you plan on getting married? All right, and then they'll say, yeah. I'll say, are you going to wear a veil? Oh, no, Brother Ralph, we're not going to wear a veil. Well, why? Don't you know that that veil indicates purity? Are you not pure? I mean, don't you understand then that somehow or another, and I'm not going to say this in class, of course, because I'm not that stupid. All right, but you know, and you think, oh, well, wait a minute here. That was a symbol that you were a virgin. Does it mean that now? Well, probably not. Have you seen that the, that the Kardashians also wear white when they get married? And you kind of think, well, that's not virginity. Well, what does it mean in this culture? It is just flat a matter of taste. Follow that it is. It doesn't mean anything else. And besides that, if white means virginity, why do the guys always have to wear black? Oh, okay. So not wearing a veil does not dishonor a woman's head anymore. But I do think that the principle is binding. I do think that the principle is binding. Why? If you go to a culture, and many of you have done this. I remember one time I had a group of students in uh, Tanzania. And uh, one of them wore a skirt that was about mid-knee, but when she sat down, you could see her whole knee, and the local women went nuts. Why? Well, it's okay. In some cultures in Africa, to be baptized, you know, with your breast exposed, because that's not a big deal, but you can't see the knees. So I got the girls together, and I said, Wear the longest stuff you've got. If you have to sew it together, 
sew it together. I don't want to see no more needs, okay? None whatsoever. And if you represent the church, you do not do so in blue jeans. If we're door knocking, I don't care if it's 102 degrees outside, you wear a skirt and a blouse or you wear a dress. You do not wear blue jeans. Why? Because of this principle. This principle. I know a man by the name of Roy Deaver used to say, should a Christian woman carry a red purse if in that culture red purse meant that she was a prostitute? And of course the answer would be, I think there are other colors available. <laughs> you know, it would not necessarily be that. So I do believe that the principle is binding on us today, especially if you're going to be preaching in another culture, because what you're wearing may be speaking more loudly than what you are saying. Therefore, I think the principle is still binding. Akatakalupto, I understand, I uh, forgot to do this with BDAG, a, a higher level uh, uh, Greek lexicon before I left, and this is what I had. So what you got is binds. It's not the best. But katakalupto means to cover up or to cover oneself. Prebalion means to throw around. Okay, so if that's the case, and I'm hoping this is not um, a root fallacy on the part of vines, but it means to throw around or hang in front. Now, when I've gone to congregations where they say the women practice the veil stuff, here's what I have largely seen. I have largely seen this. That's what I've largely seen. Now, what's wrong with that? Well, if you're going to do it, then do it. And if you're not going to do it, then don't say that you're going to cover up the head by putting this little kippah thing on top of your head. So I'm thinking that, by the way, if a church and an eldership wants to say our women are going to do that, I will be in perfect harmony with them. Unless they make it a matter of fellowship. And at that point... We had to load up a group in California one year because they didn't tell us that it was a veil church until we got there. And I had a group of about 30 young people with me. So I said, uh, I had a meeting of the men, there were no elders, and I said, hey, uh, let's talk about this veil thing. Oh, that won't be a problem, Brother Ralph. I said, okay, as long as it's not going to be a problem. We're going to do a vacation Bible school here. We're going to knock on doors here. We're going to distribute literature here. We're going to have a gospel meeting here. We're going to do all that stuff. But if it's a problem, it's a problem. Well, one of the ladies there kept five of our teenage girls up most of the night talking to them about, their, about her preferred spiritual condition. And that was the veil. Then they had another meeting with the men. And I said, if you don't fix this right now, tomorrow we will be on the plane. We will stay here as long as you view this as a matter of judgment. But if you start telling our young people that the girls have to wear veils, then we're going to have a problem. And we didn't have a problem. Because it was not spoken of again in those terms. I'm, I, and I would feel the same way about non-institutional. You know, I grew up around here, remember? I feel the same way about non-institutional. If they want to say, this is the way that we are going to support orphans. But we're not going to say that you're not a, a true congregation of God's people if you do it another way. I would say go for it. Do it. However, your congregation can practice James 127, then do it. We will not have a problem until you start saying we are not in your fellowship because of this. So the two words, I uh, talked about that. So I cannot say that the two extremes, number one, would be the, uh, the woman can do whatever a man can do. This is called egalitarianism. And number two is what I call the barefoot and pregnant view. The barefoot and pregnant view is, uh, well, women should be barefoot and pregnant and should not be seen or heard. Uh, and so here are the two extremes. Now, I just had an uh, interview with a Christian Chronicle as they're thinking about what various congregations of the churches of Christ believe about the role of women. Right now, it's a hotter issue than instrumental music. It's uh, really big right now, and I don't know what the outcome of all this will be. I do think in the past that we have kept women from doing things that the Bible would not place any restrictions on them because of that. I do believe that. 
According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God doesn't care who baptizes a person. He doesn't care. Why? The administrator of your baptism is irrelevant. But, would it be better to have men to baptize uh, the candidates for baptism in order for there to be unity and to keep the church from falling apart? I think so. So whenever we think about this, uh, here's where I am now. I'm quoting a, a, a person that some of you know well, but I don't like to use names of somebody that I'm going to be talking uh, on the opposite side of because it's really not necessary for us to talk about who is and who is not in fellowship that is above my pay grade. I'm not here to do that. I'm here to tell you how I'm understanding 1 Corinthians. So here's how I'm understanding it. There is something to the created order argument that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2. Why? Because it was the man who was first made intentionally by God. And then the woman was made, Adama, as a helper to God, to, to, the, to the man. So in the text, who is made to be the helper of whom? Well, it is pretty clear. So what about 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35? Now, here's a problem that a lot of people don't know about Greek, that there's only one word for woman and wife, and there's only one word for man and husband. So that whenever the word is used for woman or man, or husband and wife, you have to determine by context whether or not he's talking about every one of them. Here's another something in Greek that is not always true, but is sometimes true. If I say Joyce is a woman, I'm not necessarily identifying her as my wife, but if I say she is my woman, then that's a dead giveaway that I'm saying she's my wife. Now the question then is, we would like, all of us would like, I think, to have a glimpse, a video, of what was happening in the Corinthian church. Many of us think that we know. Many of us are pretty sure that we're exactly right about this and the truth of this about it is some of it is very difficult to, to interpret. But as we think about this, here's what I'm thinking. When Paul says that certain groups just, just need to be quiet, Greek word sagao, for to uh, just hush. Hush. I mean, when you get really upset with your child and you've had all the tolerance that you can have, you can just say, because I said so. The equivalent of that in Greek is sagao, hush. Okay, it doesn't mean say something else. It means hush. Now there's another word which has to do with quietness that is used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and it's not the same word. That a woman should learn in quietness and all submission. Three times Paul tells a group to hush. The first time would be, what if there's too many tongue speakers? All right, if, if uh, after you've had two or three, hush. If a man has a revelation from God and another has a revelation from God, then the first man should submit to the second man and the first man should hush. And then the third thing he says is, I want women to hush. Now that's not with regard to everything because you couldn't breathe or, or sneeze or snort or whistle or sing or say the, great, the, the, the good confession. But on the other hand, if he had said the women of you, then it would be very clear that he wasn't talking about all women, but he would be talking about the wives of the prophets. But he chose instead to just use an imperative, and he just said women. That's what he just said. He just said women. So, uh, is it true that many of them would have to learn from their, their men, the text says, at home? Yes. And he's probably talking about their husbands. But one of the things that has still bugged me about ESV although ESV has become by far the number one translation, you know, where I teach, is this thing about 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about you know, the head of the woman is, the, you know, the head of the man is going on, all that stuff. And then the ESV will switch back and forth between husband and man and wife and woman. And the average person who doesn't know Greek does not know that they're doing that. So what I'm thinking is, be consistent with it. If you think the text is talking about married women, then say, married women. You think the text is talking about married men, talk about married men. But be honest with the translation. 
And that is one of the few places in ESV where I have been personally disappointed. Because it allows some people to understand, in my opinion, it allows some people to understand the text in a way that maybe was not specifically said by God. So if the head of Christ is God and the head of the woman is the man, is he saying the head of the woman is the man or is he saying the head of the wife is the husband? Well, the first seems to fit better into the context of the passage, at least in regard to spiritual things. So where I am on this is, although I am willing uh, for, consider, you know, for considerable discussion, I'm willing to study, I'm willing to come up with ideas that I haven't had before, I still believe that there are gender-specific roles in the Bible. I still believe that male spiritual leadership is taught in Scripture. And I think that two times, maybe three times, it is possible to separate the principle from the custom by virtue of the fact that the roles of men and women are tied to creation in at least two out of these three times. Now, the first time is 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. And the second time is 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Now, I've read the book by a good brother who is not convinced that the creative argument, uh, creative order argument is used here. And I've uh, tried to see if that's uh, correct. And I don't know how to make sense out of what Paul's saying if he's not saying the man was first created and then the woman. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 14, 34 is one of those passages which might refer to Genesis 3.16, and it might refer to Genesis 1.26 and 27, when he's talking about the law. So I don't use the third one. Notice I say the word perhaps there, because I'm not real sure what the reference is to the law there, and it could be, your desire shall be to your husband, and he will rule over you in Genesis 3.16. All right, we got other stuff to do. Lord's Supper. Um, Son, Mark, I can't believe you're sitting here, brother. Okay, <laughs> and you are my friend. Okay, so the question is going to be then, you know, is it table, according to your, your book, Come to the Table, is the Lord's Supper supposed to be sacrament and ritual, or is it supposed to be more celebratory and kind of gathering around the table and sharing what Jesus has done for you in your life that week? Well, this might sound like a cop-out. It's not because you're here. But it's because it could be both. Amen. You know, it could very well be that we have done too much of this stuff. You know, and when we do this, this is a symbol to the church. You've got to be silent. And then it is argued on the basis of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why? Well, because we're doing self-introspection during the Lord's Supper, and we do not need for somebody to be leading a song because we are thinking about our relationship with Jesus, to which I will say, invitation song. <laughs> what do you think the invitation song is for? The invitation song is sung to help people to think about their relationship with Jesus, and if they need to respond, to do so, so the argument falls apart at that point, so you're going to have to go to something else or stop the invitation song and let us all stand and be silent. So is it possible then that the agape toy, which would have been the love feast of the first century, is it possible that uh, they were confusing the two? And agape toy was like, you know, dinner on the ground, except you do it out of love. Now, what Paul seems to be saying to me is this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's saying, look, you're going to have a hard time filling up on unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. It is not a good meal. I've seen some of you eat. I know you will not get filled up on that. Okay, so what's it for? Well, its initial purpose is for something different. Matthew 26, Luke 14. It is for something different. Tell me when I have to stop somebody because I have too much to cover here. Okay, and so whenever we think about this, what I'm thinking of is that these people were not doing it right. And because of that, Paul is reminding them that there's no way that this is the real room because the building ain't 2,000 years old, but you can spend money on it in Israel if you want to. 
Okay, but nonetheless, you know, this is not the real upper, but it might have looked something like this. So when we think about 1 Corinthians 11, uh, he does remind us of the fact of why Jesus gave it. And it reminds us of the, uh, of the fact that, look, if you want to fill up, why don't you just go eat at home? Which, by the way, is another problem because our non-institutional brethren use this as a passage for saying that you can't have a fellowship hall in the church building because if you eat, you're supposed to eat at home. Well, if that's true, you can never eat at a restaurant because you have a home to eat in, eat in your home. Second thing wrong with that is it is just as wrong to not find patterns where God has found patterns as it is to find patterns where God is not. Most of the time that Jesus was on earth, it seems to me that he spent with the legalists, the Pharisees, and to a lesser extent, the religious left, the Sadducees. So it is just as wrong for one as the other, it seems to me, and the practical outcome is that the Lord's Supper should be a, a wonderful time of unity. I can uh, remember a time when we were at the World Mission Workshop um, at Abilene and there were uh, several tables that were set up at 12.01 p.m. and we were able as, as various groups to go up to the table and to partake of the Lord's Supper maybe in a way that's a little less formal than what we sometimes see and a lot of people found that refreshing now whether or not it has to be done that way all the time of course I wouldn't be dumb enough to say that alright and so let's go ahead and say the spiritual gifts the varieties, the permanence, the regulations the varieties, well, there's a bunch of them, and here they are. With regard to the varieties of spiritual gifts, there would be the word of wisdom. i got to quit at some point. Andrew, where are you? Uh, when do you want me to quit? When you're done. Yeah. <laughs> About what? Okay. All right, so here are the nine that are listed. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the faith by the same spirit, gifts of healing by the one spirit, the effective of miracles, prophecy, distinguishing of spirits, various kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues, etc. And with regard to those, notice that we are, that they were to find unity uh, in diversity. Now, my main guy, uh, my Greek dude at Lipscomb was Dr. Harvey Floyd. And he would teach us about the uh, Corinthian heresy. Now, the Corinthian heresy involved two things, actually. I hope I didn't de delete that slide. If, if not, I'll just tell you what it was. Number one, that tongue speaking is the highest of all of the nine gifts. That's a heresy. They are distributed by the Holy Spirit, which leads to the second heresy. They're not based on your own individual spiritual qualities. In other words, if you are a more spiritual person than somebody else, you get tongue speaking. If you get something else, you get something that not somebody ever heard of before because it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and all that stuff. So the Corinthian heresy, number one, the Holy Spirit does this according to kingdom purposes, not according to individual purposes. And number two, the Holy Spirit does not do this as a sign of your own individual spirituality. He does this for the good of the kingdom. Another thing to be careful about is to say that God doesn't work anymore. I'm going to be talking about that some uh, next at CYC this next weekend, that God doesn't work anymore. If you say that God doesn't work anymore, look, because God has eliminated these these are available, that were available by the laying on of the hand, hands of the apostles or of others who were able to do this. This does not say that God has ceased action. This doesn't say that God doesn't respond to prayers. It just says these spiritual gifts came to an end with the laying out of men's hands. Now, whenever you think, and besides that, if you look at early church history, it took a little while, apparently, for some of these to come to an end because apparently some of these gifts continued into the early second, in, into the second century. So when we look at these, the body is one member, baptized one body, etc. All right, in praise of love, uh, this has nothing to do with marriage unless you want it to, um, but it does have to do with the fact that, now I'm going to take this away from you. All right, so Monica, can take away your mouse for a minute. That's almost like taking away your life because I know you. Okay, so now I got, all right, so now I got your mouse, right? Well, if I'm going to take away something like this, then, you know, as a father and a grandfather, one of the best things to do is to put something in your hand that's better than this because I'm taking this away, right? 
Okay, so if the miraculous spiritual gifts are going to be taken away, God's saying, I'm going to give you something better. This is something beyond what you have ever imagined. It's going to be powerful, monumental, earth-shattering. I'm going to talk to you about love. It is the permanent gift. Uh, it's not the temporary gift. John Mark, I know you got to go pretty soon. It's a permanent gift. We've already talked. I'm not pushing him out of the crowd. Okay. All right. It is the permanent gift, and it is not a temporary gift. And therefore, when we see this, we should see the fact that these 17 qualities that we see here of love is a weird thing. It is a mind deal. It is rational, and it is emotional, and it is volitional, meaning that it's you got to choose to love somebody sometimes. It's not just a matter of hormones. And it's a matter of will. I will to do this. And it certainly is a matter of your heart. So that when you think about this, you say, well, I would like to have those. Those 17 gifts that are there. Uh, the 17 characteristics of love. I would like to have those. Now here's the story about 1 Corinthians that I see. Notice that how so to Chloe is sending the letter. How so to Chloe uh, is receiving the message from Paul. Now here's what you do about this, and here's what you do about this, and here's what you do about this, right? So it's all in the context of the things that the Corinthians could immediately begin to uh, initiate. You want to do this? Here's how you go about fixing that. Now, why all of a sudden then would he be talking to them about, by the way, all this, these problems you're having about Miraculous spiritual gifts, they're going to come to an end whenever Jesus comes. Well, bless your heart. Just sit around and wait for 2,000 years. You know, and then some more. And then your church is going to get better. So when I've studied this with others, rather than trying to say, what exactly is that which is perfect? When that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away. I think that the way that we sometimes do that, uh, some of our charismatic friends are really not understanding exactly why we seem to be doing what we are accusing them of doing. So when we think of that, let's get over to every one of these as I choose to think and I choose to feel. So what I'm thinking then is, is it the, is it the Bible? That's the traditional view of the churches of Christ. So when the Bible was completed, the spiritual gifts, miraculous spiritual gifts were given. By the way, all three words for spiritual gifts are in a non-miraculous context in the Bible. Dorema, pneumatikos, um, let's see, what's the other one? Um, that's the third word for, for gift in the Bible. I'll think of it in a minute. They're all used in a miraculous context and a non-miraculous context. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you want a gift that I can give to you, <coughs> it'll be greater than coming off that mountain and gathering that water. And he said, I will give to you this spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift in Romans 6 and verse 23 when you have the forgiveness of your sins. It is the free gift of God. So if somebody says, do you believe in spiritual gifts in the churches of Christ? The answer is, oh yes, major, please, write me down. The question then is not whether or not you believe in spiritual gifts, but do you believe in miraculous spiritual gifts? Because spiritual gifts, every Christian is supposed to have. Romans 12 beginning of verse 7. It's the miraculous spiritual gifts that we obviously do not have. So is it talking about the second coming of Christ? No. Parousia is not in the context. Plus, it does not honor the principle of Chloe's laundry list. Why? Well, that's not correcting anything that would be in their lifetime. Well, then maybe it's the Bible, some of our brethren will say, because he's talking about the Bible. When the Bible is complete, then these miraculous spiritual gifts are going to come to an end. Okay, tell me when the Bible was complete. That's the problem. The canonization process went over a long time, and certainly there were canonical lists that were written early on, the Diatessaron, etc. There was not a specific time in history where we can say, aha, now the 66 books are in place until maybe 325 A.D. So that means then that you're arguing that for 225 years, miraculous uh, spiritual gifts continued while the Bible was being completed. 
So I have a problem with that because I don't know how to answer it. But I can't answer this. What if Paul is saying, when that which is perfect, we know the word teleos refers to a mature state, when that which is perfect comes, then, then, these gifts will come to an end. Now, when the church reaches the mature state that God wants, he will take away the mouse, Monty. He will do that. Why? Because that is in the context. The word Bible is not in the context. Besides that, Abiblios is masculine gender, and that which is perfect is neuter gender. So it doesn't seem to fit, but that does fit. And, it, and there is a reference to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, about the fact that uh, of the maturity that the church reaches. I don't have time to talk about all that now. So, um, you know characteristics of the New Testament miracles, but I don't want to talk about that right now. Chapter 14. All right, so prophecy is to be preferred over glossolalia, according to verse 1, Paul says. Why? Tongue speakers speak to God, prophets speak to the church. Disadvantages to tongue speakers, why? If there's no interpreter, the church is not edified. The rest of the church is not profited because they don't have understanding. And it'll be better, be better to speak a few words to you with understanding than tens of thousands of words that you don't understand. Thus, pray and sing with the Spirit. Another problem here is that as you talk about the human spirit or the heaven, the Holy Spirit, well, somebody said, well, is it capitalized in the original? And the answer is, Yes. <laughs> Why? Because every word is. You know, in the best manuscripts, every word is capitalized. So in the uncial manuscripts, so why don't you just say that? So you have to determine, like the word law in Romans, it will drive you nuts. What law is he talking about? Well, what spirit is he talking about here? Thus pray and sing with the spirit. I think it's probably parallel John 4, 24. One can only say amen, by the way, with understanding, and glossolalia is for the unbelievers, so Paul calls the church to maturity. Now, the practical outcome of this is he wants us to be uh, understanding that in the meantime, these, these gifts have to be regulated. And so here are the first four. No more than two or three tongue speakers per service. If no interpreter, keep silent. No more than two or three prophecies per service and prophecies per service, and then let others judge what it is that has been said. If one is seated while another receives revelation, the one speaking should keep silent. That's the word. Uh-oh, what did I do? <laughs> keep silent, keep silent, keep silent. Three times there. Especially whenever you add together this third keep silent, which is right here. The women are to keep silent in the churches. Now I got this, by the way, from ESV. If it were a dead certain given conclusion that he's only talking to the women why I mean to the to the wives why does the ESV render it women in this case I think it's the New American Standard which is a very accurate translation that renders it women and not wives the women are to keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak so that's uh, what I believe about this and that is the fifth of the regulatory rules. But of these regulatory rules, you could argue that they were just for Corinth if you want to, and therefore they're not applicable to 21st century charismatic gatherings. But I'd want to know if that's the case, well, how are you going to determine whether or not anything is to your church? I mean, every, just about everything in the New Testament was written after the after the book of uh, after the gospels was written in a congregational context so if none of it refers to us uh, i'm being recorded and i shouldn't say this but i'm going to then get get drunk and go naked i mean what difference does it matter why i'm not suggesting that by the way i am making a point it is not to you it is not to you so, if what is said in Corinthians is not to me, if what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 is only to the Ephesians, and if what is said to the, to the Romans is only to the Romans, and if what Peter says is only to those who are of the dispersion, then what I want to know is, what is it that's actually to Ralph on the 24th of February, 2020? 
That's the problem. So, um, here's another point that might preach if you choose to do so. Um, I have sometimes been known to preach one on Sunday morning and one Sunday night and hope that Jesus doesn't come in the afternoon. But, <laughs> but here's the deal. The Bible does teach that Jesus is not equal with God. My desire, my purpose is I'm, I'm, I'm here to do what you told me to do. John 4, 34. The head of, of Jesus is God. 1 Corinthians eleven three. I do not know when I'm going to return. Matthew 24. John 8. It's all about the Father. The Father. Why are you calling me good? It's about the Father. The Father. The Father. All authority was given to me in heaven and on earth. And then in John 7, verse 2, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. All of that sounds as though Jesus is a subordinate. Jesus is an employee. Oh, wait a minute. Then there's the other side. John 14, 6. Haven't you learned that when you see me, that you see the Father? That this mind be you is also in Christ Jesus, though not Robert equal to God. In the beginning was the word, words with God. 1 Corinthians 1, 15. He is the express image of, the, of, of people in John 8. He talks about the fact that he is equal with God the Father. John 17, etc., etc., etc. Hmm, interesting. Wonder how I'm going to get out of that. Because if I preach one side... I haven't given the whole story. If I preach the other side, I haven't given the whole story. So I guess I better try to figure out how to preach them together. So I see the same thing with the role of women today. Women and men do not appear to be equal because in Genesis chapter 2, there's the stuff about your desire should be over, you know, you sin. In chapter 3, uh, you're made second, secondarily to the man in chapter 2, chapter 3. Your desire shall be over. Miriam is, is punished because of bad things he says about Moses. Aaron is not. First Corinthians 11, they had a woman's man. First uh, Corinthians 14, be silent. Ephesians chapter 20, 5, 22, um, the husband had the wife of Christ had the church. First Timothy 2, the passage there about men are supposed to lift up their holy hands out wrath, decision, doubting. Women are to adorn themselves with modest apparel. First Timothy 3, verse 2, um, you're going to be an elder. You need to be, um, then, then you need to have you need to be a husband of one woman. Okay, and then Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. And then 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 through 7. Uh-oh. Okay, it looks like they're not equal. Except when they are. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, there's no differentiation. They are both made in the image of God. Genesis 3, 7. Eve is made in God's image. Judges 4 and 4. There's the case of Deborah. 1 Corinthians 11. All of us men here have come from women. Galatians 3.28, there's, you know, in Christ Jesus there is equality. Romans 16, there's the case of uh, Phoebe. And then there's the case of Junius, uh, who was named among the apostles. So how do you answer that? And here's how uh, I would like to go about presenting a possibility. Women and men are intrinsically equal in the eyes of God. Jesus and God have the same express nature whether on earth or not. He was God on earth. He is God in heaven. Jesus was given a, a job that would require that he was instrumentally not equal with God the Father. And here's a further kick in the britches. Um, let's just use these three stacks here. You know, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the Father. He's really in charge of everything. And there's the Son. Whoa. He is submissive to the Father. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Well, in John 14, 26, and John 15, 26, and John 16, 13, he's submissive to everybody. Now, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes. Then how do you explain this? They all serve different roles in the scheme of redemption. And it is a role that they play, not because they are inferior, they are not inferior. I have four daughters. My wife is also a girl. I've had to try to talk to them a lot about this. And that is, well, there's some things in the church that God doesn't want you to do. Is that because you're not as smart as? Man, i got daughters as smart as. They are as smart as many people here. Okay, a lot of people here. Okay, everybody here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just, I, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. But i got some smart daughters. 
So are we saying then that women are inferior? No. Are they less than? No. Are they other than? No. But they do serve a different role in the kingdom of God for which we may or may not understand all the reasons. We may or may not understand it all, but it's not going to change. Therefore, that would be the conclusion of the chapter. Let all things be done properly and in order, according to, of course, E. Claude Gardner from years gone by. So, uh, if you're going to have time for a question and answer period, if I go through, I won't have to have any questions and answers. It's uh, three minutes till. Um, okay, here we go. First Corinthians 15. Here's what you're seeing, and here's the outline. The resurrection of Jesus is that upon which all of our lives is based. Without his resurrection, none of us is going to make it. There were those who had denied the resurrection in chapters, in verses 12 through 19. And there will be consequences of that, because if you deny the resurrection, then this world is all that there's ever going to be. Because when you're dead, you're dead like Rover, you're dead all over. And there is no pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. He does make some arguments from a first century experience, uh, one of which is very difficult to interpret, about, you know, uh, baptism for the dead. And I take it that they would have understood that a lot better than we do, although I don't have time to talk about that. But the resurrection of the body is going to happen. And notice that there is this clear distinction between the soma, which is your present body, somatica would be the plural bodies that we have, and then your spiritual body that you're going to have someday, which is pneumatica. So you're going to see that there's a big difference. And I'm hoping that one is going to be able to be carb-free. You know, I'm kind of hoping that one is going to be such that you don't have to worry about diets or whatever else. But the point is, there's that clear, very clear distinction between the kind of bodies that we have now and the kind of bodies that we're going to have. It's also true that in this text... There are some questions about what is the current status of Jesus. Does Jesus himself, uh, what is he presently? In the churches of Christ, we have had some people over the years who have argued that Jesus is going to eternally, or at least everlastingly, be the Son. Now, if he's everlastingly, this is, will be in your notes. You can see this for yourself. If it, if it is indeed the case that Jesus is everlastingly the Son, why does he need to stay in a glorified man form once we go to heaven? I think the text says that when we go to heaven and the scheme of redemption is complete, then what's going to happen is that he's going to become God all in all once more. Just like before John 1 and verse 1. I don't think that he's going to be in the glorified man form anymore. I think that he's going to be the Lagos. Just the way that he was before he completed his part in the scheme of redemption. Now, do we usually close this part with a prayer, Andrew? Or? Okay, well, I'm done. All right, so uh, I'm not done, but I haven't got to chapter 16, but let's just, inform, let's just consider right now that it's non-canonical. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm done. Okay. Uh, is that it?